Welcome to Bootstrappers, a program designed to bring you up-to-the-minute ideas and concepts to understand what it takes to succeed in business and life. Each week, we'll bring you guests and ideas you can't find anywhere else. Bootstrappers is a production of Anaquim LLC. Now let's lace up those business boots and join Bootstrappers with Jeremy and Gwen Aspen. Welcome to this episode of Bootstrappers. I'm your host, Gwen Aspen, president of Anaquim, and I'm here with my spouse, Jeremy Aspen, president of Wistar Group. If you're new to Bootstrappers, we talk to the most fascinating, interesting uh, people who have started companies of their own, um, who are thought leaders in business, in the community, uh, and we talk to them about their organizations, how they help businesses, business people. And so if you're a uh, property manager out there. A lot of the lessons that we learn here at Bootstrappers apply very well to those businesses or just any entrepreneur or business person out there. So with that, um, hi, Jeremy, how are you doing? What's going on, love of my life? (laughs) Should we uh, get hungry, break things? and start the Bootstrapper Show? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, fantastic. Well, we're here today with Byron McFarland. Byron is the founder and owner of the McFarland Group, which he started in 2005. The McFarland Group helps entrepreneurs grow their business, retain talent, and exit their ownership stake. Prior to founding the McFarland Group, Byron spent over 20 years in the financial services business, and Byron is an avid fly fisherman and served in the Marines. Welcome, Byron. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Gwen and Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. What a great radio voice. Oh my gosh, yeah. right? <laughs> our 1290 listener, like, well, this guy does this all the time. I'm, so, look, I'm looking forward to the calls. <laughs> <laughs> so Byron, we're super happy to have you on the show. And to be honest, I've really spent very little time thinking about succession planning for our businesses. Uh, I was going out to lunch with one of my mentors, Fred Vakili. And uh, he asked me, hey, what are your exit plans for your businesses? And I was like, I don't have an exit plan. I'm having a ball. I'm, you know, working internationally. I work with my husband every day. I'm having so much fun with the people I work with. The last thing on my mind is succession planning. And he said, well, maybe you should start thinking about it because working, you know, 60 hours a week with uh, your family and juggling everything gets kind of old. And at some point, you're going to want to change your lifestyle. Well, and I'm I'm her elder by about ten years, and one, <laughs> one of the you know, I, so I need to really step it up. Even after her conversation with Fred, uh, she came back, and I've always I'm, I'm guessing you've run into this plenty, Byron, but um, run into people that are proud of. I I just don't see myself as the kind of person that's ever going to retire. And so that must, that must come into the calculus of like, are those the people you probably never talk to or are those the people you're like, now shut up. You, you just haven't thought this through well enough yet because you're going to have to, that day's coming. Well, it depends on how many cocktails I've had there. Okay. Right, right, right. Shut up. <laughs> I've been told I'm, I'm uh, willing to be direct, but uh, early in the sales process, I'd probably be more prone to be politically correct. So. I would be looking at you going, oh, yeah, I can oh. understand and appreciate that. That's not stupid. That's yeah. not stupid. That's, I get what you're saying. Here's my card. Yeah. So is, it, is that a problem with entrepreneurs, though? They just don't think about it until they're in a spot where they just really need to make a change? 
I would say that those who decide to do it that are younger are outliers. Okay. And they would be probably more prone to be planning every aspect of their life. So you might know people that have like planning vacations three and five years out and have bucket lists that they're checking off and yeah, in that. So yeah. those, those types of people are just, they like to be prepared and know what is coming and feel like they are in control to the extent they can be. But I will say the majority of the people that I deal with, Gwen and Jeremy, are they're 60 years old or older. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so they're pushing up against that wall. It, it, they have to. Yeah, right, the, so only, the only ones that would probably be between those two would be someone who had a major life event where a family member got really sick or died or something, and now they've reevaluated their priorities. So is that the right time to reach out to a company like yours to discover, is that the optimal time? Actually, um, if your plan was to sell your company to an outsider, then it's all about market timing. So is there activity in the market? Are there is there consolidation occurring? And if there is, then do you have sufficient value to get out and do what you want to do next? But if you're, go ahead. Well, so lest they miss the opportunity. So if there is consolidation going on in, in an industry, like actually property uh, management to some extent, um, it, the, you're maybe holding on to something that you should, it is in your best interest financially to just let it go. The, like the market is surrounding you and it's going to squeeze you out uh, now with the price, with being able to sell it, or it's going to squeeze you out with uh, lesser valuation. Yeah, the, the big risk would be that your, your size becomes less competitive. Mm -hmm. And if, if size is not a, a competitive advantage or disadvantage, then timing isn't that big of an issue if you choose to pass. So that's kind of what we're... Well, I wouldn't say that property management is quite there. No, no. Yet. But I do think that like part of the, what we do as Anaquim is we bring the scale to the smaller companies so that they okay. can compete. And I think that's actually staved off consolidation to some extent mm -hmm. uh, because like in one of our products is uh, commonly known as virtual assistants. Well, for the, you know, a third of the price of an American employee, you're getting a lot of that work done. And that I think does leave some extra cash flow on a monthly basis and keeps the companies kind of going. That's didn't mean to plug the yeah. company in the middle of an interview, but that's kind of what we're doing and mm -hmm. what our industry is up against. I'm, I'm glad I could set you up like that. I didn't know how this works. So yeah. this, this is really easy. <laughs> so, okay. So barring consolidation or some big market pressures that mean that a company has to sell at the right moment, um, I, I'm assuming that you would be better off thinking about an exit plan earlier rather than later because you can put a lot of the pieces together, make your company more valuable so you have the most bankable sell, which I see is your way of describing a, a, a positive exit. So if someone's in the middle of their business, what kind of things would you suggest that they think about in order to plan ahead? Well, first of all, let me say that if, you're, if your plan would be to transition ownership to your management team and your goal would be to receive full value and not be the bank, not the seller be the bank, then seven years in advance of the, of the change of control would almost ensure you'd get full value and probably get it all in cash. Okay. Now, any, and the reason I say seven years, Gwen, is that 
we need to create collateral for the buyers. And the way we create collateral for the buyers is to, is to design incentive plans that allow them to participate in the appreciation in the company that they're helping to create. And then that appreciation turns into collateral, which is either stock ownership or, or cash or a combination of the two. And then they use that to buy, to buy more in the company. And next thing you know, the bank is looking at the successors as having sufficient collateral and capacity, which is really important. The capacity to, the capacity to convince the lender, I can run this business and have run it and have delivered results and will continue to deliver those results in the future, which will be the necessary money to pay you back. That's the banker's primary objective, of course, is to make a good loan, prove to the regulators they, they know what they're doing, and then have that loan get serviced in an orderly manner. And so time is essential for succession. Timing's essential for sailed outsiders. So this is Bootstrappers. I'm Jeremy. This is Gwen. We're both Aspens. We're with, uh, we're with uh, Byron McFarland of the McFarland Group. Um, and McFarland Group, uh, tran is, you help with mergers and acquisitions and you do um, uh, planning for companies. And actually, I should probably ask that. What is your primary focus at McFarland Group? Well, our, our primary focus is to design bankable exits for business owners seeking to transition ownership to their management team. Okay. And then in addition to that, we do, we design and we implement and we manage equity-based incentive plans that tie management to the results. And then the third thing we do is, is through a facilitation process is unlock the creativity in the management team so that they can creatively resolve problems that make them feel stuck. Wait, make them feel stuck? Unstuck, I'm sorry. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Unstuck. Okay. So I want to go back to preparing for the exit. So, so the number one thing is that you have to have a great leadership team in place. And I'm sure you go to companies all the time or you're consulting with companies and you're like, none of these people are the right people. Does that... Is that true? Does that happen? Well, well if my clients are listening, I'm going to say no. Well, <laughs> um, I would say that it's a question of, of timing in their development stage. And you're, you're go, you go back to the traction or the Jim Collins language, which is right person, right seat. We're, we're evaluating whether or not we got the right person. And then determining whether or not they're in the right seat. So we use a series of, of assessments. We, uh, we assess their, their modus operandi. We uh, interview them for uh, past experiences that would lead to expectation of future results, which is tied to Jeff Smart's WHO book, which is we use that WHO scorecard. And then we do um, um, 360 interviews with other members of the team to find out how they feel about them. And we're trying to, trying to identify from the perspective of the, the successors what risk exists in this successor taking over. And we characterize those risks into three categories called gaps, blind spots, and minefields. And the gaps would be in financial gaps that either exist between what the seller needs in the way of resources from the business and what the value of the business is. And then the other gap would be the gap between what the buyer needs in the way of capability to be 
the CEO or the, the owner and where they are now. And we really evaluate those gaps very thoroughly up front. The blind spots would be risks that would be like defection, divorce, disability, death, uncovered property casualty exposure, lack of entity recognition because they're not having meetings, you know, formal board meetings or formal shareholder meetings. And then what, what minefields are there in the organization, which are the interpersonal conflicts that commonly exist in all organizations because people have feelings and if they don't have their expectations met and change of ownership is usually when expectations become unresolved. Like, you know, you promised me one day, this is all going to be mine. And now you're transferring it to this other person. And, and the, the person whose feelings have been hurt or a key employee who may end up defecting. So we try to understand all that right up front. We're looking for, let's say, you know, now that we've spoken to our buddy Fred and we're looking forward to someday being able to retire. Um, how, you know, let's say we're 10, 15 years at, ahead of time, right? Before we actually would want to exit. There's got to be certain things or some formula that a company, you know, prepared ahead of time can use to determine what will be the best way for them to value their company. Uh, or, or I'm sorry, to, to have a higher valued company. So to co compare and contrast, if you have a company that is about you, like you're the salesman, you're the rainmaker, you're making all the, the stuff happen, you are the customer service department, like really it's you. When you exit the company, your value, the value of your company is, is less. Um, but if you have machinery, you have standard operating procedures, right? Uh, then the valuation should be higher would be my thought, would be my guess. What does that look like in real life? And what have you seen, you know, coming up over the years you've been in business? Well, probably the single biggest uh, um, additive for value in a, in a business would be security or safety in the future earnings. So the more security or predictability or stability you could, you could prove in the future earnings, the more value you'd receive. For example, if you were if you owned a company that had reoccurring monthly revenue that was under contract, and that revenue was could be forecasted years into the future, then there's a very high likelihood that the profits from that, that revenue would be realized as long as it's managed effectively. So reoccurring monthly revenue businesses tend to have can qualify for a higher valuation because there's more safety in it. So if you think of value is value is really the result of two things. One, predictability in the future, and two, opportunity to take advantage of something. So when companies merge or one company buys another company, they tend to be buying it because they see an opportunity to bring something the other company has into their organization, take advantage of that something, and then enjoy appreciation in the future. So I have a client now that's in the industrial business uh, uh, pipe business, and they're looking at acquiring a company that gives them more market geography. Well, what they're buying is the geography. And they get, if they get that geography, then they get uh, more sales revenue with fewer, fewer uh, overhead costs because it doesn't take any more overhead to maintain that additional geography. It takes salespeople, but salespeople are revenue sources. So typically it's safety, predictability, and uh, opportunity to, for appreciation. So I know there's more questions around how to create a, a valuable company, 
So I'll let come. I'll let you ask them, and then I'll answer them. Well, to Jeremy's point, um, a lot of owners of companies they are involved in the operations. They're the salesperson. They're the face of the company, and they know that in order for them to create a bankable exit, they have to get out of that so that um, they're not the most valuable part of the company. But a lot of entrepreneurs resist that because they think that if they're not in there working 80 hours a week, they're going to send the wrong message to their employees that you know that you don't have to come in or that they're lazy and they're not setting a good example. How do you get owners to maybe take a different mindset? Well, the highest expression of ownership would be investor. So, okay. So, so, that- so if you can become an investor, which is a healthy relationship with the company, then that means you've done the following things. You've found people that you can trust to play major function roles and be responsible for outcomes. And then you've delegated responsibility a lot like Warren Buffett does in all of the transactions he's involved in. He's not running those companies. He's an investor. He's finding people he really likes. And then he buys the company because he likes the management and the product. And then he lets them run it and he gets his share of the profits. So, so it's a, it would be the highest expression of ownership to get yourself in a position to be an investor. It isn't easy especially if you come from a family of time where the, the work ethic was time and effort. Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where a lot of us come from. I know I did. My mom and dad are both small business owners. They work seven days a week. You know, I get it. It's you're, you're committed and you know, you know how to do something, but and you feel the feeling of having perfect be necessary is usually what holds business owners back from delegating and that perfect can be, Uh interpreted in different ways. And what I found, it isn't so much the perfect output. It's the, it's the perfect process or the perfect method of re of getting to the output. And most business owners, they get, they get afraid when they see somebody doing something different than how they do it without yet understanding what the output's going to be. So they have to allow for the, the successor to express their creativity their unique style to do the work the way they do it and then see if the output is pleasing because the typically they're not very pleased with the method. I always hear, Oh, I don't know if that's going to work because I just don't like the way they're going about doing things. And I go, well, we, let's wait and see how it turns out. Well, it tends to turn out just fine. It just was very nerve wracking in the change. And they, and they call that the cauldron of change. Most people release control and then they see that things are being done differently and they get really anxious because oh, there's a yeah. lot on the line and then they reach in and grab it at the last minute and retrieve control. Oh, thank God I did that. And now then I can go know. back to exactly the way it was. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. Byron, you're like, <laughs> you hit on so many key points. Well, and what's the fun really? Like if you're the succession plan, if your, your hopes and dreams are to be able to run the company, but in the meantime, you're not given those opportunities to develop yourself as the leader of that company. 
and, and, and which is what the, that owner in that scenario is doing. They're stealing that opportunity. Oh, from wow. the, from the people that are the working, are taking it on. Uh, who are going to be taking it on. And I do think that uh, growing up in the Midwest, I mean, what is the highest uh, compliment you could give someone? Yeah. Oh, you're a hard worker. Yeah. You're a hard worker. And so to make that mind transition to being an investor is so hard for people um, who maybe came from nothing or really struggled and found a company that, uh, you know, put their heart and soul into a company that gave them satisfaction that they were valuable as a person and that they could contribute to society. And taking that back seat is very difficult. But like you're saying, if you want to ever exit your business, it's a necessary transition to get the maximum value out of all that hard work that you put your blood, sweat, and tears into. Right, Byron? Exactly. Yeah, you need to overcome that founder's fear of failure. Founder's fear of failure. This, wow. is, this is Bootstrappers. I'm Jeremy. That's Gwen. And we are speaking today with Byron McFarland of the McFarland Group in Omaha, Nebraska. This is 1290 Coil. Um, sorry. So I was just going to ask about this leadership team that's going to take over. So one of the things you said is you have to um, not focus so much on the method, but focus on the outputs of people. So people are going to do things differently than you do them, but it's not going to necessarily be worse. So it sounds like you coach people to not freak out when the method may be different. But how do, uh, what are the key factors? Um, and I know you have a matrix and you're doing it in a very quantitative way, but just talk to us about what makes a good person as a, to be a successor. Oh yeah, so um, what we really need as a successor is a visionary primarily. They need to be able to envision the future and be willing to take risks and then more importantly, be able to develop a team. So their, their ability to get others to trust them and buy into their, into their vision of the future and then understand clearly through uh, frequent interaction with the team what role they play and what the expectations are gonna be and how our behavior is observed by all of the other, all the other members of the organization and what, are, what significance there is in each interaction they have, at least initially as we're going through this transition, that we need to have a unified front to the team that we're all going in the right direction. There's no anxiety about the ability for us to, to lead this organization absent the founder or whoever it is that was leading the organization prior because the last thing we need is doubt seeping into the line. If the line starts to feel the doubt, then mistakes are made and people start looking for other jobs or, or excuses start popping up and the culture takes, you know, that what they call a death of a thousand cuts. You know, you just get a lot of little nicks and next thing you're bleeding all over the place. So, so how do you do that? Let's say you have three people that you, that could be the successor and you're really not sure who's going to take that position. How do you transition without uh, someone's feelings getting hurt or without really knowing who the person's going to be? Well, that's, a, that's what the consultant industry is made up of, Gwen. Okay. That's the, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's that's, the if, I told you that, if I told you that, then there'd be no reason to use me. But uh, if, I'd, if, if I had known what I'd be doing today, I would have studied psychology or psychiatry in college. 
uh, yeah. mm-hmm. attention. But I am Irish Scotch, so I am a, you know, I think I'm somewhat of a natural psychiatrist. <laughs> um, so what we, what we're looking for is the ability for those people to trust each other first and do they respect each other? So we're looking for trust and respect. The and two then people from, that could be the successors. The, if there's going to be three people on the team, whether or not they're going to be equal owners or there's going to be one majority owner and two minority owners or whatever it is, we're, I'm just looking for trust and yeah. respect. Okay. So I have a client that has four owners and two owners ended up being the majority shareholder. And those two guys, I observed them very early on and they had not worked together when they bought this company. One was brought in from the outside, but he was very easygoing and very relatable and non-threatening in terms of command or control. He was willing to share responsibility and the, the individual that had been in the company as a senior member of the management team felt very safe with him and they, between the two of them, they acted as the controlling interest. So mm. that trust and respect is really key to that. And then from there then, it's about sorting out who's sitting in what chair. Got and it. There's, from there then, we go first to the trust and respect, Gwen, and then from there we're looking at what, what major function should this person be playing based on their experience. One of those key factors in keeping the people that manage the business on the day-to-day is compensating them fairly in a way where they feel like they're valued. And so, so... Byron, tell us more about some of the options that owners have in terms of compensation plans that really keep those key important people on the team during a transition. We have a transferable concept I call the date, engage, marry platform. The date, date, engage, date. marry platform. Oh, yes. okay. Okay. Yes. So as you go through, uh, stages of commitment in a relationship with another person, you're beginning fairly informally dating and then you get to be a regular date on Friday or Saturday and the next thing you know, somebody pops the question and now we're making plans for a commitment and then we get committed and now we're locked into a legal agreement. So dating, dating would be a metaphor for cash bonus. So we have very little commitment you do your part, I do my part, and at the end of a period of time, you're going to get paid. You're going to get paid cash. Engage then and introduces a more enhanced commitment. We're going to stay together. It appears like we might get married, but we still haven't gotten married yet. the The wedding is out into the future, and there's lots of planning to be done, and perhaps some marriage counseling, and you know all that, and so. Um, engagement is be a metaphor for what we call derivatives or phantom equity, phantom stock, stock appreciation rights, anything that is um, the value of it is tied to the underlying value of the business. And then it can be settled in cash, but the way that it's measured is based on the value of the business. So you got a, you got units of ownership that represent value of the business. And then the third marriage would be, uh, receiving ownership through stock or membership units or partnership units. And that stock could be voting or non-voting, but typically it's minority interests. So unless you own the majority interest of a small company, your vote really has no influence over policy because the majority shareholder has that. 
So we usually counsel our clients to look at their relationship with their key employees in the same lens. You know, how committed are you to guys together? How long have you been together? How well do you know them? How much do you want to share everything about your life, which is your financial statement of the business? Mm-hmm. Because that's what happens when you get married. And oh, so, right. so if you don't want to share your financials, then we probably either better be dating or engaged. And then it comes down to somewhat psychology because some people, the psychology of ownership is when someone asks you what you do, when you've not met them before, they usually are looking for something very elegant and influential to say. I'm a partner at XYZ company or I'm a principal at, you know, this firm. And that way you get that, what we call the first tee box effect. So the psychographics of ownership are substantial for some people because most achievers are ego driven and they're looking for a way to express that ego in some form of title. So as you talk about bankers, you know, everybody's a vice president. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you, you've caught onto that pattern. <laughs> Everybody. Um, do, so do people, the business owners, maybe especially the entrepreneur, are they, is there a tendency for them to overvalue their company when you come in? Well, um, you don't want to tell anybody their baby's ugly. Right, <laughs> right. I've done it a hundred times. <laughs> you can't do that. Can't do that. So um, valuation is less science than art. Um, so mm. the when, when you're valuing a firm, you're, you're really considering the predictability of the future earnings or the buyers looking at the how well they performed in the past or both. So if you are valuing a firm based upon the future earnings and the predictability of those earnings, then you're using what they call discounted future cash flow method of valuation and you're forecasting the earnings in the future and then you're assessing the level of risk of those earnings coming in and then you apply what they call a discount rate to that and comes up with a number save you the math, but it, that's a discounted future cash flow method. If all we're doing is looking in the rearview mirror and we're taking into consideration what have you done in the past and we're adjusting the earnings for certain non-cash expenses like depreciation or other things, then we'd have what we call a capitalization of historical earnings method. So those are two methods of valuing. And then there's for general contractor construction companies, or companies that are doing business where the way they acquire the work is through bid, where they have to be the low bidder or lowest acceptable bidder, and acceptable means they have the capability to finish the job based on past performance, then they don't tend to get any goodwill value. They just get book value, whatever the net assets are in the business. And that's because it's so transactional, is that right? So really the business ends the second you don't have a job. Well, the business, no, the, and a general contractor, for example, I've got a, I've got a, a couple, several general contractors and, and, and all our general contractors, regardless of their size, and you know, they're, some are doing over a hundred million in revenue. Hmm. It's, you take the assets minus the liabilities and that's the business value. There's no, there's no recognition of what they could do in the future or what they did in the past. It's, it's just, this is what they're worth right now because the way they acquire business is not doesn't really represent any goodwill factor. So, so mm. maybe this is so that's more of a commercial realm. Maybe um, 
Because when could there be goodwill in uh, an HVAC company that yes. has a brand out there? Oh, so, no okay. doubt. Yeah, that's a that's a service business. Okay, right, yeah. right, right, right. So the, that's the, the difference that's the is difference the bid, there. the yep. bid versus yeah. bid. So yeah, yeah. so uh, H, HVAC or plumbing or specialty masonry contractor, any business that has customers that are making choices to keep coming back and then maybe their business acquisition is relationship. We've had a relationship with Jeremy and Gwen for 10 years. Just call Jeremy and Gwen, they'll get it done. That would be a representation of uh, goodwill and the expectation that in the future, Jeremy and Gwen are going to continue to do business with us. So, so do business owners overvalue their business? I would say in the past when interest rates were high, everyone thought their business was worth 10 times whatever it earned. Okay. Because I can invest my money and get 10%. So if I got 10, 10 times 10% is a hundred percent. So if I could get, if I was making a million dollars a year, my business is worth 10 million bucks. But now when interest rates are really low, I don't find anybody is looking at that as a comparable. In fact, I don't find anybody has any idea what their business is worth unless they're aware of what's going on in their industry and they're, they've, the, the valuation methodology now has kind of been embranded on their brain and all they think about is valuation, valuation, valuation. Yeah, so. that's a that's kind of a tricky one because even Warren Buffett, if I'm not mistaken, has just recently said, I don't know what stocks are worth, uh, essentially. Yeah. I mean, how do you find, it's not like the market is telling us what these companies are worth. And so what's happening on Wall Street, you're kind of finding here in a local market. Yeah, yeah, oh, I think that, shit. again, I think that valuation, again, it goes back to the, how predictable is the future? Hmm. So yeah. the, the more predictable, the, then the easier it is for me to say, this is how much I'm willing to pay for something because I'm going to pay for anything I buy today with money I'm going to get in the future. So we're with, I'm sorry, hon, but uh, this is, uh, I'm Jeremy. This is Gwen. This is Bootstrappers. We're on 1290 Coil um, and our podcast. Uh, we're speaking with Byron McFarland and he's of McFarland Group and they specialize in mergers, acquisitions and um, what was the word you used? Bankable uh, exits. Bankable exits of your company, which we all, whether you believe it or not, are going to go through. And, and if you want more information, if you go to the McFarland Group uh, website, Byron has a ton of white papers on all of the subjects that we are discussing today and I found them highly illuminating. You know, and I know that we're kind of pushing up against the break, but I'm curious about do more deals in your realm or maybe just anecdotally, do they blow up at the beginning? Like when you're endeavoring to figure things out or after the consummation and, 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 and um, new management takes over Wait, it's, or, or is there just a really good, uh, everything's perfect after the consummation is all blow up beforehand. Like what, what, and I'm sure you What's must have typical? some funny or messed up stories about <laughs> people just blowing it up, just destroying opportunity. Yeah. Well, the, the key understanding of the advisor who is standing by the seller is what are you going to do the day after you sell? Yeah. Oh, so they frame it. Okay. So we, have, we pay a lot of attention to their, their hobbies, their, their side interests, if they have any. If, a, if I'm talking to an owner and their hobby is 
basically coming in and finishing, you know, weekend work and then all their side interests are around the industry and they're in the industry and they're, they're pretty much, uh, you know, very binary. They are at home or they're at work and there's no other, there's no other life. That person probably is going to find a way to blow the deal up when it gets into the red. Oh, no kidding. Fascinating. Yeah. That, yeah. Not intending to, but yeah, they start to get a taste of it. And I've actually had some friends that started to get a taste of retirement. Yeah. And just were disgusted by it. And we went through a moment where we were trying to buy another company and it blew up at the end yeah. because he just could not. We should have. He kept saying, oh, well, I want to transition for one year. I want to transition for two years. And then it became five years. And we were like, no, we like you, but not for five, four years. I don't even really like you that much. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I I do. I I was a good dude, but you didn't need five years. So that is interesting. So would you advise entrepreneurs to have hobbies? Because that way, when they end up selling their company, they don't have an emotional breakdown. Well, I, I would say anybody that I have to advise to have hobbies is probably not going to listen to me anyway. <laughs> but it's such a good point. Like, this is a bigger picture item. And I think me, you know, I, I'm uh, getting older now. And I always found myself in a position where really my hobby was my work. I would go into work all the time. I cared. I, cons- I was concerned. I um, but I will say over the last, since the last five years, since, um, I've got a little bit more perspective. I mean, nowadays, geez, fly. Don't, don't. <laughs> just, we've got all sorts of many. hobbies. It's too and, many hobbies. But uh, to, to my point, <laughs> that's what I think has kind of enriched my life anyway. So if you're, if the point of retirement isn't to enrich in the, the years that you've, um, uh, you know, that you prepared to, to not have to work so hard. Kind of what is the point? I mean, that must be what's going through their heads. They're like, eh, you know what? I, what, I'm going to stay home with my wife who I kind of hate anyway all the time. Oh my you know? God. <laughs> well, so I think the takeaway for entrepreneurs who are obsessed with their business, which we are and many other people tend to be, is before you even get to the point of trying to sell your business, Think about what your greater life purpose or what brings you joy so that, you know, you can have a larger focus rather than just your business. Because at some point, you or your family members are want you go- going to want you to slow down or do something a little bit different. And, you know, now is a good time to think about what that would look like. And, you know, when I was growing up, I always thought of the Rockefellers and, and the descendants of those people as being the most wealthy people in the world, right? They, they, they inherited their income. It was old money. But nowadays, and the irony where I'm going with this is that the wealthier you are, the more time you actually work. So the, it's really changed. It used to be that, in, that being wealthy was a passive um, it, it came about from passive activity and just kind of ownership, you know, uh, just having the right name, the right. being born, right? Um, but nowadays, it there is a very strong correlate that if you work many hours, you are wealthier. And that's That's different. Yeah. That's different. So McFarland Group has done a perfect job up to this point with this company that's selling, right? Um, you've got uh, the structures all laid out. You're getting to the red zone. Um, what does it look like to actually consummate this, this plan? 
yeah, what it, what it looks like is a big construction project that all of a sudden now you can see the exterior. You got glass going up and you see uh, where all the, the uh, angles are and it's looking bright and shiny and everybody's pretty doggone excited to occupy, especially the buyer. The buyer's really excited and now he's pushing the seller along, trying to make decisions in advance of uh, being in control and spending money like a drunken sailor. It's just chaos for that. But other than that, it looks really pretty. And what we're dealing with then is, is we, we have, we, if we have done our work, we know exactly how the seller is going to get paid. And ideally the seller, when they change, when they turn over the keys, mean change control. So now they've gone from being 51% or greater to having no ownership or a minority ownership interest. When they do that, they got a big check. And that big check, when added to the other pile of money they had going into the transaction, when you add those two together, they were financially independent from the business. So their anxiety around the performance of the business now is completely personal. It has nothing to do with their security. It's now, is my baby going to be okay? As opposed to, is the check going to show up in the mailbox and am I going to be able to pay my airplane use fees or whatever it is? Okay, so we... We lay all that out for them so they know exactly what their number was, how they're going to get paid, and then we create what we call uh, we, get, we create deferred income sources for them because most business owners are living a little bit of their lifestyle out of the business, and they don't want to stop that. So if they're a member of a country club or if they're they're driving high performance automobiles that might have a you know high end lease or if they're fractional ownership of an airplane or um, they're going to conferences in interesting places, we construct arrangements that allow them to stay in that seat. So they get to continue to receive those benefits as they're kind of detoxing. Because if I'm hearing you right, if I'm hearing you right, you are saying that we should buy an airplane. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Byron. Okay. No. Yeah. Good call. <laughs> um, so, so you do. You call it a detox. So they're detoxing for from working in the business. And so, how long is a is a reasonable detox period? Well, it depends on the on the addict, Gwen. So, the, <laughs> the more addicted the more addicted they are to the uh, stuff, the uh, the longer they want to hold on to it. But know though that those items are are taken away from sale value. So if I continue to pay for those things in, a, in a, either a compensation agreement or consulting agreement or some other arrangement, they're gonna, they're gonna come off the top of the value. And the, the advantage to the buyer of paying the seller um, or continuing to pay for things on behalf of the seller that are legitimate, that can be legitimately deducted, is that it costs the buyer less money. So if, I, if I'm going to buy a dollar's worth of stock from you, Gwen, given the current tax rate, if I'm at a 40% tax rate, I need to earn $1.70. I give the government 70 cents and I give you the dollar. Now, conversely, if I was just going to give you a dollar in compensation, Gwen, I earn a dollar, I get deducted, it costs me 60 cents. So I don't know about you. I went to a land grant education, but I think sixty cents is less than a dollar seven. I have a calculator. I'll work on that, fellow. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we try to we we try to embed uh, tax deductible um, methods of payment into the transaction to allow 
the seller to gracefully move into the next stage of their life. And so does that, I, sorry, does, so does the graceful transition um, often include the owner sticking around for a little bit longer? And then how do you compensate them? I mean, is it strictly salary or what is that? That's gotta be a complicating factor. Well, it, it is actually, Jeremy, very complicated. However, what, we need, what we're doing early on is identifying what role, if any, the seller can play. And quite often it's more of an advisor. Mm, and, okay. and we're not asking them to have any day-to-day -day responsibility. And we're continuing to pay them and whatever we're paying them that would be considered surplus over value, that would go against purchase price. Surplus so over value, yeah. So if I, if I was doing nothing, but I was getting 100 grand a year for five years, then chances are that 500 grand is going to go against purchase price. And the reason that we did it that way, Jeremy, is because it made the deal feasible mm -hmm. and it met the bank covenants because the bank has loan covenants on debt service coverage ratio, tangible net worth to debt, all that. And we're doing things based on what the bank guidance provides us in the way of, of uh, covenants for loan compliance. This is, Jer this is Bootstrappers. I'm Jeremy, this is Gwen. We're speaking with Byron McFarland from the McFarland Group on how to get rich after <laughs> when you sell your company. Banks. Um, we're all familiar with what a mortgage looks like. So what is a, where, first of all, where do you go to find money for, for a transaction like this, buying a company? What's the interest look like? Like what's, what's all that? But you probably are going to start with your incumbent lender because they understand your business better. And it's been my experience that they're, they're, they're more willing to consider the transition funding because they may have relationships with both sides, but whichever lender you choose, during the planning build-up process, while we're building that big building, that lender is showing up on the construction site to check our progress and performance. So we're, we're introducing the buyer to the lender in a, such a way that the lender is able to see how the buyer is playing a role in the company. And, and ideally, we'd be assigning responsibility of the earnings to the buyer while, we're, while we are building the plan. And then the lender then can go to committee and advocate for the buyer. Oh, this is great. I mean, I think we're learning a ton, but I want to just, because we're wrapping it up here, just want to ask you if you had one piece of advice for somebody who is working in their business right now, blood, sweat, and tears, 80 hours a week, what would that advice be? Take a clarity break and assess your team and, and honestly assess your team and do red, yellow, green on your team and see where you are in terms of your team as number of green you have. If you don't have a lot of green because of either a time in the chair development, then figure out how you're going to give them development on an accelerated basis. If they're not green because of behavior, then you need to start looking for top grading and making some changes. So that would be the most important thing. Get the right team. So for, especially our Omaha audience, but I'm supposing that you don't restrict your clientele to just in Omaha, but uh, what or how do people get a hold of you? Well, we actually have a national, uh, we have clients all across the, the country and in uh, Costa Rica. So we're a international, I guess, in our scope. So I can, we can be reached uh, on our website. Uh, that's the McFarland Group, McFarlandGRP, GRP.com. And our phone number's on there, uh, e uh, email is addresses there. So 
And uh, I would give my cell phone number out, but then I would assume I'd I probably end up getting either. solicitations from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Let's not do that. Okay. Right. McFarlandGRP.com. Right. Um, and then we'll put, since it's a national audience, we'll put that also on the uh, YouTube. Good. Well, okay. we just want to thank you so much, Byron, for being here with us. I found this discussion incredibly enlightening. Yeah. Thanks a million for coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, and uh, this is Bootstrappers and we will see you next week this has been Bootstrappers a unique presentation designed to help you better understand how the world turns contact Gwen or Jeremy at posts at bootstrappers.club or visit our website anaquim.net be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Google Play, Spotify and our YouTube channel thank you and join us next time for Bootstrappers Bootstrappers